this episode, we're talking about taboos. So just a heads up, you might like to check the episode description first to make sure the content is appropriate for any kids or sensitive ears that might be listening. I'm Mariano Hotter. And I'm Dan George. Welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. This week, we're talking about taboos. So a few months ago, one of our This Study Shows team was scrolling through Twitter, clearly working very, very hard, (laughs) and came across the following tweet. Can you read it out for us, Marianne? Sure thing. So, do you find lighter patches in your dark underwear? It's normal. Your vagina is acidic and has a pH of 3.8 to 4.5. That is acidic enough to bleach fabric. And that's what's happening. Oh, great reading, Marianne. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So this tweet came from the team at the Vagina Museum in London, who were promoting the kind of thing you might learn at their Muff Busters exhibition. The original tweet got 33,000 retweets and nearly 100,000 likes. And it clearly resonated with a lot of people. So it got us thinking about the times when science communication is held back, not by limited science literacy or misinformation, but by embarrassment. So that's what we're looking at in this episode. How researchers are able to communicate their awkward science to audiences that need to hear it. Later in the show, we're going to hear from two scientists who have mastered the art of overcoming taboos when they share their research. But to start with, who better to kick off this conversation than the founder and director of the Vagina Museum herself, Florence Schechter. Welcome to the show, Florence. First of all, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Florence. I am the director and founder of the Vagina Museum, which is the world's first bricks and mortar museum dedicated to the gynecological anatomy. This is very cool. Tell us. How did you come to the point where you're setting up a vagina museum? Uh, Well, before I was working as a freelance science communicator. And one of the things that I did was I had this like little YouTube channel and I did videos um, about things that I found interesting. And I did one video that was like top 10 animal penises. Um, And it was really fun and funny and uh, it went a little viral. So I was like, oh, I should do a follow-up of like top 10 animal vaginas. And I found it was really difficult to find research. Uh, The science is heavily uh, weighted towards uh, penises than vaginas. It's just generally a lot less research done into them. And uh, I was complaining about this to my friend and she was like, oh, I've just been to Iceland um, in Reykjavik and they have a penis museum there. Maybe there's like a vagina museum and you can ask the curator about stuff they know. And so I tried to Google it and um, there's like a, like an online museum kind of, but there was no like place I could go visit um, and chat to, you know, the front of house staff or the tour guides. And so I was like, oh, I I guess I should just make one now. (laughs) As you do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was like looking for a life goal and it kind of like fell in my lap. And I was like, universe, I get it. I get what you're trying to tell me here. What's the response been when you say what you do, that you're the director of the Vagina Museum? Are people fascinated? Are they grossed out? What's where, Where are people at? The vast majority of the time, people are intrigued I would say how they show that intrigue it definitely varies of like the levels of enthusiasm 
Um, but definitely nobody's like, oh, that's boring. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, generally, you know, vaginas are something that's not really talked about very much, um, hugely stigmatized, but it's something that people want to talk about. And so then when I turn up in a conversation at a dinner party and then I'm like, oh, I work at the Vagina Museum, people are like, oh, this is my opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and because she says she's making it safe for the conversation so I can piggyback on her confidence. Um, and then suddenly like these floodgates open and I actually have to be really like mindful of it when I'm in group settings because I like just mentioning I work for the Vagina Museum can like monopolize a conversation. That's really interesting though, that, that it feels like people are liberated, you know, like they've been really wanting to talk about this and, and now they feel really liberated. Is it, is it men and women? Well, I, I mean, it depends on which, which forum um, that we're talking about, you know, like on social media, like we're actually mostly followed by women. Um, but men are equally excited and some are a bit nervous of like coming off as pervy and they'll like be like, I am a feminist, I promise. And <laughs> or sometimes I'll like crack jokes to make themselves feel more comfortable, which I actually don't mind as long as they're not too disgusting jokes. But you crack jokes about it as well, don't you? I mean, you, you are a comedian, so you... Do, is that part of your science communication to, to get across, you know, the, the mission of, of the Vagina Museum? Yeah, absolutely. Com comedy is really important to our tone, actually. It's something that we've discussed a lot um, with Zoe, who is our development and marketing manager, who does all our social media. And our tone is super, super important to what we do because vaginas and vulvas in the gynecological anatomy, they're so stigmatized and they're so, so taboo that just talking about it, sometimes even saying the word is really difficult. And comedy is an extremely useful tool to, um, because of the way it works, it's, it revolves around talking about things um, that would be otherwise uncomfortable in a fun way. That's literally like the basis of a lot of comedy. So using comedy as a way that we can talk about important issues in a way that makes people not feel uncomfortable. So mm. like comedy is a specific tool that we employ. Do you worry though that the people coming through the doors of the Vagina Museum or engaging with you online are kind of there for a laugh or there for a bit of titillation and it's difficult to make that bridge to the kind of perhaps the more serious, important myth-busting or normalising conversations that you want to have as well? Um, actually, I, I don't think it's difficult. So people walk past the door and they see the sign Vagina Museum and they're like, ha, 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 lol. And then they come in <laughs> and then they like see the kind of demeanour of our staff. They see the signs that we have up. They see the kind of things we have in our gift shop. And they're like, oh, this is not the place I thought it was. But actually it's like a really thoughtful place where they're talking about like how people shouldn't be embarrassed about their periods. And it's like, you know, like one of the objects we have is a giant glittery tampon. Um, and people come in and they immediately understand from the atmosphere that this is not that place. And right. they realize that it's actually an educational place, but one with a fun tone. So we get loads of teenagers coming like after school to get snacks and just mill about in the way that teenagers do. And there was this one time that I was sitting on the front desk and um, this group of teenage boys come in 
and they immediately uh, go over to the leaflet table that we have because there is like a worksheet that um, has a diagram of all the parts and it's like, can you name all the parts? And they look at it and they're like laughing, making jokes. And by then (laughs) showing them I was in on the joke, there was like this immediate rapport that was made between us and they started joking. They came over and we were joking and it was really fun. And then one of the boys, he holds up the worksheet and he points at the picture of the vulva and there's like quite clearly three holes and three holes have like little lines saying you should name each of them. And he goes, um, miss, you know, like when you're with a girl, you know, like with a girl, um, what hole do I put it in? And I was like, oh, I understand what's happening here. These are teenage boys who desperately want sex education. Um, and they don't know how to get it. And they find this place and the only, they're so uncomfortable because they don't know how to have this conversation. And the way they deal with that discomfort is by making jokes. And then once I've developed a rapport with them, they're like, they realize that I'm a safe person to ask those questions. And so we ended up talking for like 45 minutes about everything. We were able to break down these teenage boys barriers and really get them to learn something by using their initial instincts to have a laugh. And and once you got over that first barrier and used humour to to get over that barrier, did you then carry on using the humour or did it become a bit more sort of medical, scientific-like? <laughs> um, so the, I think the most important thing when you're doing any kind of communication and especially science communication is you need to pitch it to where they're at. Mm. So I always followed their lead. So... Um, uh, you know, if they were having a laugh, then I would have a laugh back. And then if they got a bit more serious, I would try to be a little bit more serious. Okay. And like, you know, for example, like when we have very old ladies, for example, come in and they can't even say the word vulva, they say like tuppence or something. I won't force them <laughs> to say, tuppence, by the way, is my favorite. Um, uh, I won't force them to say the word vulva or vagina. I will use the euphemisms that they're using because what's important to me is that we're talking about it. And as long as we're talking about it, that's the most important thing and maybe somewhere down the road they can get more comfortable to say the word vulva but right now if we're having the conversation that's at least one barrier like jumped over how much misinformation is out there oh my god so much so much we get so many questions about things where you're like this should be obvious and it's not we get twitter dms all the time of people asking us medical questions. And we have to be like, we're a museum. We're not a doctor. You need to go to your doctor about this. It's not even just misinformation. It's also a complete lack of information. People have no idea what to expect. And so they naturally think that anything that they have is either absolutely abnormal, but it's just like they have asymmetrical labia, or they think something that's abnormal is normal, Mm. like really extreme period pain. And then when they do go to their doctor, their doctor is like, yeah, that's, suck it up. That's what periods are. Come to me when you have a real problem. It's it's a slightly, slightly strange segue. Um, So I've been to the penis museum in Iceland um, because that was one of the things you can do when you're in Reykjavik, when it's raining. Um, And (laughs) it was, it was, it was really interesting and I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if I really want to go. I mean, if there'd been a kind of an art gallery next door, I think I probably honestly would have gone there instead. But the the thing that I took away was partly that it was a lot less about kind of having a giggle than I had expected it would be. But also that I felt a little bit like it was 
buying into this idea that the penis is fetishized and it's this thing that we should all be fascinated by. And I was like, but it's just, you know, a bit of you, a bit of some of us. Do you worry that you're kind of doing the same for the vagina, even though your intentions are good? That's a really interesting question. So what I find is that we try to desexualize this part of the body where society is trying to sexualize it. So we we actually somewhat rarely talk about sex in comparison to other things we talk about. So we like we'll talk about periods a lot, we'll talk about um you know uh, medical things quite a lot cuz me- medicine is one of the top things that people ask us about is medical conditions. Mm. Um and we massively try to say like, look, there's, the vagina does other things other than just sex, but society keeps sexualizing us. So for example, when uh, we were applying for our charitable uh, status, like uh, to register with the charity commission, one of the things that the charity commission came back to us with was our name. They said, can you please kind of prove that you've properly thought about having the name Vagina Museum because people might complain. And so I sent them a four page essay being like, the fact that you asked that question is exactly why we need to call it the vagina. (laughs) We're never going to break down stigma if we can't even use the words. Why do some people find it awkward and and some people don't? Is it is it a generation thing or is it the way people have been brought up or what is it? It's a a huge number of factors. And I I definitely think it's a bit of a misconception that like young people are better with this stuff than older people. There's like really complicated things going on with age and generation for sure. Um, Because also like younger people, we have access to porn in a way that earlier generations didn't. And uh, that's massively affected our views about what vulvas should look like. And then sometimes you might be lucky to be born in a family who is feminist. Like I was really lucky to be born in a family that um, was very open about talking about taboo subjects. And so I was very lucky and that's why I'm very confident about it. What other techniques, Florence, are there to break the taboo around awkward subjects for psychomers as well as comedy? I mean, comedy is always my go-to because I'm always up for a laugh. And I, I do think it is the strongest thing the strongest tool that we can use to to break taboo because taboo is something that thrives in a culture of shame and how you know how do you get around shame um you make fun of it really do you know what yeah. i think also might be a good a good technique for breaking taboo and this this might sound a bit like counterintuitive when we talk about psycom as in communication um uh, because a lot of psychomers see the work as i talk at people and they listen And I would propose, actually, you should do it the other way around. You should listen and let them talk. And so like the time that I really realized this was when we were doing an event at the London Metropolitan Archives and their audience is much, much older. We had a little stand uh, where we're talking about vagina myths. And I remember this one lady came up to us and she was quietly looking and then she started chatting to us and we were just quietly listening to her in the way that like, you know, kind of young people were like, oh God, I can't interrupt my elder. I must show respect. (laughs) Ah." Um, And then she suddenly told us this story out of the blue that she used to be a nurse and um, she was at the birth of a child who was born with indeterminate genitalia. Um, So basically like it didn't exactly look like what we define a vulva as and didn't exactly look like what a penis looked like. And this is called intersex in general. 
and the doctor whisked away that baby, did what's called normalization surgery, which I also think is a horrible term for it, but basically gave them surgery um, without the parents' consent, without the parents' knowledge to correct, again, in inverted commas, um, the baby's genitalia. And she did nothing, like she didn't intervene. Um, And also this was like a completely medically unnecessary procedure. And she's carried around that guilt with her her whole life. And then she said, this is the, this is the first time I've ever really told anyone that story. Wow. wow. And we were just standing there being like, we met you three minutes ago. <laughs> but that was the power of having a safe and inclusive environment. And we would have never been able to achieve that kind of barrier breaking if we had talked over her, if we had been like, you are a receptacle for my psychom and I'm going to ch- talk at you. We achieved it by shutting up and listening to her. Right, yeah. That's extraordinary. Florence, not only are you a, a museum director and psychomer, you also sound somewhat therapist and amateur ops and gynae <laughs> yes, specialist. Yes. <laughs> I definitely feel like I should have a medical All degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, like, my, so when we train our volunteers who like work as gallery assistants and on the front desk, we give them like conflict resolution training and we talk about like some difficult issues that people might come to them with because we're like you have to understand that people don't realize that you're just like a student who's volunteering for a nice museum that they like they will see you as the vagina museum and they will offload on you all those questions (laughs) all those stories and you have to be prepared um and so like you know this is how you look after your mental well-being because yeah like it's not a job we ever signed up for but we often end up doing it What an awesome character Florence is. Oh, <laughs> just her. brilliant. Energy. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. And one of the things that seems so clear is that people are actually desperate to talk about this stuff. You know, it's all well and good going, oh, it's a little bit embarrassing and a little bit niche. But, you know, if a tweet is going to get re- retweeted 33,000 times, mm. if people are kind of going to run up to a volunteer and desperately offload all their stories and questions, <laughs> there's a need, right? Yeah, but it's interesting. I think that that Florence does use comedy, and I have a, I do have a bit of a, an issue with it. I much <laughs> prefer things to be straightforward and scientific rather than the the sort of comedic side. But but you can Listeners, tell us she hates to laugh. What can I say? <laughs> I love to laugh. It's not about science. No, I'm joking. Um, But no, you know, and and I can totally appreciate how the use of comedy in science communication is going to work with people. It just wouldn't work with me. So, so I think it's you know, it's showing that that psychom does have to be flexible, doesn't it? It has to bend to to suit different audiences. Absolutely, yeah. And you have to focus on your objective, which is to share knowledge, to increase under understanding, rather than stick to the way that you think you need to communicate it. Yeah, absolutely. And and Florence did say she she does let the audience take the lead, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, which is which is something our next guest does too. So let's move on and take a look at the communication techniques that scientists are using to share research in their day to day work. Marianne, I want to introduce you to Matt Ziegelman, who works at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I am a urologist, and essentially that is a medical physician slash surgeon who specializes in the genitourinary tract. And my specific area of expertise pertains to 
male sexual dysfunction. So I focus on things like low testosterone, low libido, orgasmic dysfunction, erectile dysfunction. I focus on all things non-cancerous involving the testicle and the penis, essentially. Now, this is an area that I think quite a few people might feel awkward talking about. Is that something that you come across in your work? Absolutely. You know, a lot of times we'll use the phrase, the the door handle discussion, right? So the man finally feels comfortable bringing something up in the, as he's, oh, you know, leaving the office says, oh, wait, I have one more, one more question to ask. Um, even discussions with our colleagues within the field, it is something that people have more or less comfort discussing, especially, you know, we work in an academic institution. And when we think about even interacting in the context of research at meetings, you know, asking the right questions, presenting the data in a way that feels comfortable can be a challenge. And I certainly struggled with that early on in my career. Did you? Um, and you know, had to work up the comfort to have these conversations with my colleagues, have these conversations with my friends, with my family about what I do for a living. Um, how, how did you overcome it then as you were sort of starting off in, in your research journey? I think the key with communication in this regards is partnership. So if you acknowledge that this is something that's challenging to discuss, example, let's say erectile dysfunction or difficulty maintaining an erection. If you acknowledge that this is challenging to discuss, but that a lot of men are experiencing the same thing that you are, you being the patient I'm having a conversation with, mm. you can see someone let their guard down. And that's important. I mean, we let their guard down in the way that we can then have an open conversation. And it really does change the dynamic of the interaction. I actually enjoy finding some sort of mutual interest or understanding more about the person's background. And again, this could be the patient I'm interacting with across the room. This could be my colleague at a meeting, but establishing some rapport in that relationship. I think that's the key to then being able to feel comfortable going into these more sensitive topics. Do people let them let their guards down easier if they understand the science? I think it I think it helps to have a background in the science and not not okay. to say that someone needs, you know, a patient, for example, needs to understand the intricacies of nitric oxide synthesis and how that pertains to erectile function. But more so just thinking about can we bring it down to a level that we can all understand? For example, when I talk about erections, I talk about nerves, I talk about blood vessels, and I talk about the anatomy of the penis. And I think that does help contextualize the condition for the patients and helps them understand uh, what we're going through. So I do, I do think that bringing the science down to the level of the interaction you're having is, is very important. Is there um, misinformation out there because of the stigma that we, we find sort of socially around these subjects? There is. Real, I think that's a really important point is that uh, I think there is an opportunity for men and couples to be, um, you know, as I hate to use this phrase, but I mean, even taken advantage of or um, given misinformation that leads to interventions or treatments that don't have evidence basis, that don't have science to back up their work. Um, there are 
countless examples of that, for example, to treat erectile dysfunction, where people are being offered therapies that have no scientific background or minimal scientific background, and they're being mm -hmm. charged a lot of money out of Not pocket to have these. And it's because of how significant of an impact their condition is having on their quality of life and their well-being that they're willing to pay this exorbitant amount of money. In your work, Matt, I, I would certainly find it very sort of overwhelming sort of emotionally. Do you find it overwhelming? I think early on, I mean, especially during training, I tended to take things home with me because of right. some of the, I felt some of that burden. But I think that's a recipe. I really do think that that's a recipe for, you know, this, this buzzword burnout um, that, that we hear about. Uh, I, I like what I do because I get to take my expertise, use it to help enhance quality of life, have these difficult conversations, normalize the experience for patients, uh, and at the end of the day, go home and feel like I hopefully did something positive for most of the men that I interacted with. That was urologist Matt Ziegelman from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I found him such a calming person, Marianne, to talk to, you know, and, and just an absolute authority, but but was very clear in mm. his communication as well. What did you think? Well, one of the things that really struck me when he was talking about what kind of science he, he chooses to explain to a patient so that they they understand, so, you know, they can have a conversation about the condition. He says he helps them understand what we're going through and it becomes mm. a we that he's kind of in in it with them to some extent that they're kind of puzzling out the the issue together and i thought that that kind of said a lot doesn't it that it's not you've got this thing and you've brought it to my you know my office and i'm going to fix you or tell you what's wrong yeah it, it becomes a kind of shared endeavor yeah definitely that sort of partnership that matt was mm. talking about isn't it acknowledging that that it is a challenge to discuss this sort of thing i mean it must be hugely nerve-wracking to go and see a specialist and have yeah. to tell them the things that keeps you awake at night and you know anxious about your the state of your relationship and who you really are yeah if you suddenly walk into a doctor's office and you realize that you both like I don't know fly fishing then all of a sudden you kind of <laughs> you or you both you know it's it's kind of humanizing isn't it yeah yeah and I think it's a a really good strategy actually because it it puts it would certainly work for me anyway it would put me at ease you know just to sort of be like oh yeah this is quite normal this is we're just talking about fly fishing or whatever it is <laughs> yeah i and and i guess the strength of being a good physician or even a surgeon is that part of it is technical skill um a huge part of it is being good with people yeah yeah i mean you could have sort of encyclopedic knowledge couldn't you about a a medical condition, but if you're really terrible at, at sharing that information with with your patients, then then they're, they're probably going to struggle, aren't they? You know, they're, they're not yeah. going to be feel comfortable. There you go. So whether you're going to a museum or whether you're going to see your doctor, you can judge them on the quality of their psychom. <laughs> <laughs> I once, when I was a teenager, I I was hiking and uh, we were doing like a student expedition. And I slipped and I cut my leg quite badly on some slate, this like super sharp rock. It's, it's kind of like almost scalpel sharp. And, 
And the bunch of teenagers and me just went, whoa, managed to bandage it up super tight. By the time we got down off the hill to like the first place that we could get help from, it was this really tiny little rural village and the kind of adult leader called and then took me to this local clinic where they had to, you know, find the person with the key to turn the lights on and all the rest of it. And this bloke turned up and said, oh, hello, I'm I'm going to sew your leg up. Uh, they can actually find the doctor, so I'm the vet. And I burst into tears. I'd been, like, really brave, keeping it together. And I was just like... <gasps> and he went, no, no, it was a joke. It was a joke. I'm a doctor. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that was a very funny joke. Oh. Yeah, I think he felt quite bad. <laughs> yes, an example where comedy doesn't work. Yeah, comedy. <laughs> Okay, for our second researcher, we're moving away from the genitals. Well, actually not that far away from the genitals, to be honest. Um, Dan, I want you to meet Dr. Rachel Santimaya, a.k.a. Dr. Poop. I am a wildlife physiologist, so I study what's going on inside the animals so we can understand how they're responding to their environment, whether at, at a zoo or if they're free, maybe in an urban area or just in a wildlife preserve. Okay, so this is a leading question. How do you do that, Rachel? <laughs> yeah, so we try to do it without disturbing the animal, which can be difficult, but they do call me Dr. Poop because we can actually study a lot of what's going on inside the animal using feces. Wow. I love that. So you don't need to kind of pin a wild animal down or an animal in a zoo to get a blood sample or anything like that. You can just follow them around with a poop bag. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I am a professional poop scooper. <laughs> so what is it exactly in the poo that you're studying? Because I um, forgive my ignorance. I assumed that mostly poo was the byproducts of what you've eaten. What else is in there that you can use as markers for, for the, the kind of more holistic health of an animal? Yeah, so we're studying these hormones. They're actually hormone metabolites that have been broken down by the body. Um, and so we can, um, as you know, with human pregnancy tests from urine, right, we can get hormones from urine. We also can get hormones from feces. And so we can just study these metabolites and figure out what's happening in this animal over time, which is great because you can't collect blood all the time. But we certainly can collect multiple fecal samples from an animal during the day. Rachel, when you're talking about your work to audiences outside your own department. What's the kind of reaction you get? I mean, do people laugh? Do they take it seriously? Are they totally grossed out? <laughs> I get a mixed result. Now, the kids <laughs> are really interested in poop. I mean, they think poop is the coolest thing in the world. Their parents, yep. on the other hand, maybe not so much. But, you know, I, I have some strategies. You know, one, first of all, you know, it's our science. It's so, it's so valuable, right? We're learning such valuable information. It's worth dealing with poop, right? It's worth it. And then I sort of got to give the level of detail that they want. I say, you know, we're, we use feces to extract hormones so we can learn about stress and reproductive physiology from these really rare, important species. And then if they ask me, you know, well, how do you do that? You know, that I'll, I'll take them a step further. I just sort of walk them through. I only give the, le the level of detail that they want, that they're comfortable with. But then I don't also harp on it. I don't say, you know, feces, 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 feces all the time. I, I kind of move on. You know, if we, we talk about it and then we move on to the results. This is what we got from it. 
right? This is what we're learning from these animals. So I'm not really harping on where we got it from, even though it's cool, especially for kids, it's really cool. And then eventually the parents start to think how cool it is too. Um, but we just sort of move on from what we're really collecting in the field uh, and then talk about what we're learning from it. And that's really what gets people engaged and interested and see the value of it. In that work, to, to expand the conversation, I mean, how much do you take responsibility for that? How much do you think it's actually the role of the education officers at zoos and conservation bodies? How much is it the role of the media? Where does the kind of responsibility lie, do you think? I think it starts with the scientists. And we're trying to train more scientists to be good public speakers. You know, it's really us now, especially with conservation, because a lot of our funding comes from the public from people interested in science. And, and then it's really important to engage kids, I think, with science and get them engaged and see that anybody can be a scientist. It's not one person, you know, whatever your gender is or, you know, what you look like. It can be anybody. And that was also one of my goals is to, to make it seem like anybody could be Dr. Poop, right? Anybody can be Dr. Poop. And we even had at the zoo, we had camp you know, during the summer, the kids would come, they get to spend time and see the animals and do all these fun things. And they get to come to the poop lab. And at the end of their camp, they were asked, what was their favorite thing to do? And that was to come to the poop lab because they got to weigh out poop. They got to process poop. They got to pipette and just getting them engaged and seeing, you know, that they can do it too. And it, it starts with the scientists. We have to be able to share our exciting results and learn how to give that elevator speech so we can keep people engaged. And with these awkward conversations, it's really important to sort of give them a set of a level of detail that they're comfortable with. And if they're, you know, more, you know, interested, they ask questions, we answer them. And I just answer them with the answer. I don't go any further in case they, you know, they don't want to go any further. I let them <laughs> sort of tell me where they want to go in the conversation. So, so, Rachel, you seem, you know, quite robust and straightforward, particularly when it comes to poo. Um, is there anything that grosses you out? Where's the line? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm ashamed to admit that saliva probably is my least favorite biomaterial. We were collecting really? saliva from our, our saliva from our pygmy hippo to look at, because you can get hormones from saliva, right? And a lot of okay. human psychological testing that they do, they collect saliva. Um, instead of blood, because people also are afraid to get their blood taken. And so when you get the saliva, they would show her corn and she would start to drool. And they literally just kind of <sighs> scooped up it into a, a test tube. And then I would take it in the lab and I would pipette it from one test tube to the other. And it just kind of string along. <laughs> I was just like, oh. I mean, hang I on a minute. That's more gross than the stuff that's come out of its bum. Yes. Yes. Okay. Just just checking. <laughs> oh. Marianne, you sound incredulous that she'd find saliva more more yucky than the stuff that comes out of its bum. <laughs> I mean it's kind of I I just I was so entertained by the idea of a, a pygmy hippo drooling over corn <laughs> that the fact that the kind of stringy drool strings were grossing out this like super experienced wildlife scientist. I was like, that, I, I enjoy that. 
<laughs> I enjoyed the kind of the comedic absurdity of the whole situation. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? That the, the people we've spoken to, they all have a, like, they're all funny. They're fun and funny people, even when they're talking about serious, serious stuff. Mm. I, I do wonder whether humour is one of the greatest tools. It doesn't need to be like laugh out loud comedic, but kind of having a sort of a wry smile on your face when you're talking about vaginas or pygmy hippos drool it's possibly helpful yeah and i think it's that sort of balance isn't it between humor that is that is going to help to communicate the science and not not make fun of it yes exactly all make fun of if it's a a person with a particular condition you're not making fun of the person or the condition yeah you're kind of just acknowledging that Okay, yeah, this is tricky. This is is challenging certain social taboos that we've both walked into the room with. Okay, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. Rachel really acknowledges that kids sometimes just don't share the same taboos that us us adults do. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're they're happy to talk about poop. You know, they they might find it funny, but they're not grossed out about it. They don't yeah. think it's inappropriate. And you know, Rachel you know, levers that and, you know, she calls herself Dr. Poop. She's the most popular scientist in the summer camp projects. I think that's pretty cool because if a kid comes back enthused by by whatever kind of <laughs> strange, weird or wonderful subject in science, maybe, maybe that changes their, their parents' attitudes. You know, they're going, no, you need to take this seriously because it is good. It's serious and fascinating. And anybody can be Dr. Poop. <laughs> well, you can, you can do it, you know, whatever it is, whatever the science is that, that you have a passion for, you can communicate it. You know, some of these are really not easy to, easy subjects to communicate, but, you know, they, they all do it extremely effectively. So there we are. I think that's Talking Taboos done. May we never feel embarrassed by science again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Study Shows. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Mariana Hotter and me, Danielle George. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.